This is Car Expert. Clearly there is some confidence in what Cupra is building from within the Volkswagen Group and clearly the brand itself has a pretty bold idea of what it can do. Kia beat Mazda and it also beat Hyundai and there's a pretty intense rivalry in the Korean headquarters for those two sister companies. I feel like the Golf R Wagon's closest competitors actually come from within the Volkswagen showroom. William Stopford, hello. Hello Mandy. And Scott Colley, hello. Hello Mandy. Let's talk some LDV news, Will. The G10 people mover is dead. Are it we is. really sad about this? No. <laughs> <laughs> we are not. And and this is this is not a criticism of, of affordable people movers, because frankly there should be more of them. There's always a market. You know, a lot of people will prefer to buy an SUV, but there's a lot of people that need a lot of space for not much money. Uh, and the LDV G10 seems like a really good product to slot into that market. Except you look a little bit closer, and it has only two airbags, a driver airbag and a passenger airbag. No curtain airbags, no side airbags. So considering the airbag count is only two, you'd be thinking, well, there's probably no active safety equipment. Well, you're right. There's no active safety equipment. But this thing just it's been it's been on sale uh, for several years now, and yeah, sales have just kind of steadily ticked up because it represents really good safety aside, really good value for money for people that can't quite sp- you know spring for something like a Kia Carnival, which is just an infinitely better car, or a Hyundai Staria or something like that. Well, LDV just quietly removed the G10 People Mover from its website. Uh, the van is still around. Um, and all they have said so far is that uh, they are introducing a replacement for it, but they haven't said what. Now, when we look at Chinese brands, uh, when the Chinese brands first came here over 10 years ago, they, you know, look, let's be honest, they brought a lot of crap here. Uh, but they have just improved leaps and bounds to the point where some of the latest generation Chinese products, like your Havel H6 and that, genuinely pretty damn good. Um, So, I've got high hopes for whatever van, uh, whatever people move or minivan, whatever you want to call it, uh, LDV ends up bringing here. They do sell something in China called the Maxxis G90, which has, my God, the tackiest looking front end design you can imagine. Like, it's, you think, you think Lexus's spindle grill is over the top. This is somehow larger and wider and taller and it's on a van so it's so much more noticeable uh there are lots of really ugly japanese people movers but this is uglier than even them but looks to be a much more impressive car inside much longer list of safety equipment there's actually more than two airbags for starters um and there's an electric version one of the things that we are seeing with the people mover market is we've got the starrier and the carnival but there's not a heap of other really good competition. The Turago is dead uh, and has been for a little while now. And the Grandview is a much more expensive car than that. And the Honda Odyssey is on its last legs. It's probably running out in the next couple of months in Australia. So, if LDV can get something to Australia with a proper list of safety equipment with plenty of space inside and at a reasonable price tag that undercuts the Staria and the Carnival, there is absolutely an opportunity there for it to, uh, to start breaking into that market, maybe more than it did with the G10. I think also with the electric one, we know Mercedes is bringing electric versions of its people movers eventually to market. If LDV can get in there sooner, I can think of plenty of high-end hotels that want an electric way to shuttle people to the airport 
or to the golf course or whatever it is on their property. And LDV could really start to take the lead in that space. 100%. And you have to think as well, there's rumors that there's going to be a Kia Carnival hybrid. There was uh, talk about them doing a hydrogen Hyundai Staria at some point. I don't know whatever happened with that. But nobody outside of Mercedes and uh, I guess, you know, Ford uh, and, and Volkswagen, but they haven't confirmed those models for Australia, has bothered to come in there with an electric people mover. Now, the, the MIFA 9... My MIFA, MIFA? I, I don't know. It's it, it's 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 not all capitalized, so it's not an acronym. I don't know. Anyway, point is this electric van <laughs> um, has got a 183 kilowatt electric motor and a claimed range of 560 kilometers, but that's on the Chinese test cycle, so you can just shave off about 200 from that. However, still, um, if they can come in there, significantly undercut Mercedes's um, EQV. Yeah, you're absolutely right, Scott. They would they would do quite well there. Um, now, the LDV G10 has is been this model that's it's been on sale for quite a while now. Um, it has a three star NCAP rating from 2015, so I, it's it's been on sale for several years. Um, but sales have just kind of steadily ticked up. We're about to get into some more news now. And we start with you, Scully. We now have pricing and specs for the Tesla Model Y. We sure do. We've known it's been coming for a long time. Will wrote a story late in 2021 saying that it, the car was certified for Australian roads. And I suppose we can now say that we actually did a walk around of a couple of Model Ys that were on the ground in Australia late last year. But at the last minute, Tesla pulled the plug and said, actually, we're going to push the embargo back on that indefinitely because it turned out it wasn't going to be able to get cars to Australia. Finally, on Friday morning last week, uh, I suppose it's the two weeks ago now, by the time you're listening to this podcast, we just got an email from Tesla saying it's live, go crazy. Um, and what we expect to become the best-selling electric car in Australia was finally available. Uh, and already order times have blown out. When it launched, you could get one in a couple of months. Already you're looking at the middle of 2023 now for the most popular configurations because Elon Musk has actually been surprised by how many people want this car. Is it because uh, the price is pretty good? The price is, yeah, very sharp. When you look at the Ionic 5 and the Kia EV6 and that sort of thing, the Model Y entry model, so there's no long-range all-wheel drive, is 68900 before on-road costs. And the Model Y performance just scrapes in under $100,000 before on-road costs. Um, that starting price is five grand higher than the Model 3 sedan and four grand more than a Polestar 2 long-range single motor. But both those cars are smaller and they're more sedan-like, whereas the Model Y is a proper SUV. It's about a grand more expensive than a Kia EV6 and undercuts the Ionic 5 by $3,000. So it is very competitive price-wise. And when you look at what you have to pay more for on the Polestar, for example, the Tesla stacks up even better. Now, the company is a bit cagey about its figures. So we don't have like hard and fast power and torque outputs, but the entry-level Model Y has a claimed 455 Ks of range on the WLTP test cycle. Performance, along with its bigger motors, also uh, dual motors, also gets a bigger battery and has 515 Ks of claimed range. And inside, if you've got a lot of stuff to carry, you can get up to 2,158 litres of stuff. And that's with all of the seats folded flat, using all of the underfloor storage and also the frunk. Uh, 
the idea of the Model Y is to take all that's good about the Model 3 and pack it into a body that is a shape that people around the world are going crazy for. We know everyone wants SUVs. Um, and to pack in more space for people like our very own Paul Marrick, who had a Model 3 and then had a child and realized that the child and the Model 3 didn't necessarily fit together. Okay. So, for people like Paul, it makes a lot of sense because you want a Model 3, but you want more space, you want more practicality. Mm. But I've been speaking to a lot of people. I, I know a lot of people who have either put an order on one um, or are planning to or are considering it. And some of those people uh, have a have uh, a family, have child seats and things like that, uh, need more boot space. That makes a lot of sense. But other people just seem to just want one just because. And I don't mind people buying an SUV over a car because, I mean, <laughs> I'm not going to tell you what to do. It's your money. Um, but I really want to see how differently this drives compared to the Model 3. Um, some reports from overseas have read that the ride quality is, is perhaps not as good as it could be. Um, but I'm very keen to see how it fares on local roads, very keen to hear what our team thinks of it. And I'm obviously very keen to get behind the wheel of one myself. You'll be able to hear more on June 22 when our review goes live. So very soon, the team's been videoing it today and Paul has been driving it. I have no idea what it's like. I haven't seen it yet, but I look forward to getting behind the wheel as well and checking it out. Mm, very cool. Next story, Will. Cupra have very big dreams for their volume plans. <laughs> okay. What a whimsical story. <laughs> <laughs> um. You're not wrong. Uh, <laughs> their sales target in the midterm is 500,000 cars per year, um, oh. which is, on one hand, it, it makes sense that they would set quite an ambitious target because they are effectively doubling the size of their model range. But on the other hand, this is a brand that was spun off from Seat that's always been uh, just a, a kind of a niche performance brand. But Cupra's uh, targeting some serious volume uh, for its range of vehicles. Um, so that was the word from their CEO, Wayne Griffiths. Uh, Cooper revealed a second version of the Urban Rebel concept, which will probably not be called Urban Rebel, and thankfully so. Um, it, that looks a little bit more production ready, so it'll be Cooper's entry-level EV. Uh, they also revealed the production version of the Tavascan, which is like a mid-sized uh, electric coupe SUV on Volkswagen's MEB platform. And they also revealed something, they actually revealed this in Terramar. They revealed a car called the Terramar. Um, and I, I, I could do that with proper Spanish pronunciation, but no. <laughs> I need to get back onto Duolingo. Um, but basically, it is a plug in hybrid, roughly Tiguan size SUV that will be built alongside the Audi Q3. Uh, so, we're seeing a, a significant um, increase in the size of Cooper's model range. And they also teased facelifted versions of the Bourne, which literally like was just launched, and facelifted versions of the Leon and the um, Formentor, which is currently their best-selling model. Uh, now, facelifted versions of those, just based on normal product life cycles, you wouldn't expect to see them until, say, 2024, 2025. So... 
bit interesting that they've teased them that early, but hey. Um, so it, it's really interesting. There's obviously, obviously been a lot of talk within the Volkswagen group about Cupra, how they want to expand it outside of Europe, uh, especially in Asia-Pacific markets. They're using Australia as like a, a, a launch pad for those more global aspirations. Uh, so a lot of talk about this brand, not a lot of talk about Seat, the brand that it was spun off from. So Cupra has been getting its own bespoke models and and it's actually kind of been stealing uh, some models from Seat. Uh, uh, if I recall correctly, the Cooper Born was uh, originally uh, revealed or announced as being the Seat Elborn, and then it ended up being a Cooper model. Um, the Formentor was its first bespoke model that didn't have a Seat equivalent. Now they've got uh, a couple more models coming potentially that, that won't have a Seat equivalent. Um, and there doesn't seem to be a lot of talk within the, the Volkswagen group about, about Seat. Now, I'm not saying it's on death's door. Um, it's always been positioned is kind of one of the more budget brands um, for the Volkswagen Group. But interestingly, um, there was talk about Seat entering the Chinese market, which would be a big freaking deal because, you know, mm-hmm. it's the biggest car market in the world. And um, those plans were scuppered and they ended up uh, creating a new brand for China only called Jetta, uh, named after obviously a very popular well, over there, <laughs> Volkswagen sedan. And Jetta is actually selling a couple of Seat products. So, I don't know what necessarily this means for the future of Seat, uh, which still doesn't have an EV, for example, while all the other Volkswagen Group brands are getting multiple. Uh, but uh, looks like a bright future ahead for Cooper. Volkswagen Group is really investing money in it. It's really cool to see that Volkswagen has committed so hard to Cupra. I know that it's still early stages for the brand and we've actually got a launch next month for all of their cars in Australia that I'm really looking forward to being involved in to see what it all feels like in person. But to show your next three cars and how they're going to evolve the current design language, to actually say out loud that despite all of the global uncertainty and the way the market's changing and the money involved in developing new cars and a new brand – how many you expect to sell and committing to pushing the game forward when it comes to electrification within the Volkswagen group aren't small things to do. So clearly there is some confidence in what Cupra is building from within the Volkswagen group and clearly the brand itself has a pretty bold idea of what it can do. Whether or not it can pull it off is another question entirely. But in a world where brands are killing their model ranges, are getting more conservative, are focusing on you know, really expensive, profitable model lines, and I'm, I'm talking about Mercedes-Benz and BMW and Audi there where they're killing their entry-level cars, to put this much time and effort into a brand that's going to make small hatchbacks and medium SUVs is a little bit out of keeping and, and it shows that maybe there is still a space for that sort of thing in the motoring world. And uh, I will say one more figure. Cupra sold... 79,300 cars last year. Now, that was a record for them. They've only been around for a few years as a standalone brand. So, I mean, of course, it's a record. But to increase by that to 500,000 in the medium term, they're, they're predicting some serious growth there. A lot of that comes from introducing these new models, entering new markets. Uh, I'm very excited about this brand and I can't wait to get behind the wheel of, of uh, some of these models locally. Here, mm, here. Hey, Scully, a big sigh of relief. Melbourne is keeping Formula One until 2035. It sure is, Mandy. Having gone to the Grand Prix this year on qualifying day on the Saturday and just seen how many people were there compared to going in previous years, very obviously there is an appetite for the public for this event. Uh, 
clearly Melbourne wants to maintain its position as the events capital or whatever you want to call it. I don't want to sound like a politician there, but as the place where people come to get stuff done when it comes to sporting events and concerts and arts and that sort of thing. And the F1's going to stay here until 2035. Um, it's the longest extension since Vic pinched the Grand Prix from South Australia in 1996. I actually have a... Uh, a poster, massive thing from the year that Victoria got the race as what a great place for the race hidden in my storage cage at home that I will eventually put up when I have somewhere big enough to have my own space to hang that stuff. Um, and Victorian government says that 419,000 people came to the race this year, showing that there is, yeah, really strong support for it in public. Um, Sydney has a, a bit of a history of trying to steal big, bold events from Melbourne. Uh, the Everest horse race is one of those where it's tried to build a richer, more exciting alternative to the Melbourne Cup uh, and runs it around the same sort of time because it wants to nick some of the prestige from Melbourne. Uh, and there was talk that the Grand Prix could go to Sydney, but clearly uh, whoever is involved in Victoria wasn't keen on that happening. Um, based on an assessment conducted by Ernst & Young, the Labor government says that $92 million of direct spending in the economy came courtesy of the GP. And it boosted the gross state product by $171 million, apparently. It is worth bearing in mind those numbers were commissioned and public published by the government that did just secure the extension. I'm sure if you were to talk to other people who live in the local area and other interested stakeholders, they may have a different take on things. But ultimately, the angle here is that the, uh, the Grand Prix brings a lot of people to Melbourne, puts us on the world stage. So, why not keep it till 2035? And as a big motoring fan who lives around the Grand Prix circuit, I'm absolutely here for it. <laughs> Me too. Good news. And lastly, Will, Toyota is appealing the diesel particulate filter ruling. Yes. Yeah, so the Australian Federal Court ruled earlier this year that Toyota had engaged in misleading conduct in connection with marketing and selling uh, certain vehicles with DPFs. Um, the justice, uh, the court justice found 264,170 vehicles sold between 2015 and 2020 had a defective diesel particular filter causing issues like white smoke and the display of excessive DPF uh, notifications. So the car, uh, Toyota has basically said that they're challenging the factual and legal basis behind the award of damages um, and focusing on people eligible for the resultant class action who didn't suffer DPF issues. So a case summary earlier this year said that while it was hard to quantify damages, there was an agreed on 17.5% reduction in each affected vehicle's value, which averages to a bit over $7,000 per car when you average it out across all the models sold. Um, and that could have potentially mean total money awarded of more than $2 billion. So <laughs> Toyota, <Wow>. understandably, <laughs> from a bottom line point of view, is appealing this particular ruling. Uh, so we'll just have to wait and see what happens next in this uh, saga. Mm. There were some particularly scathing comments from the justice, Justice Lee, who actually handed down the original DPF decision. Particularly um, scathing uh, comments. Uh, <laughs> Sorry. I would like to burn that off. <laughs> Continue. Uh, <laughs> um, including taking a swipe at how Toyota describes its customers. One of the quotes is, TMCA, which is Toyota Motor Corporation Australia, was aware that some relevant vehicles were being presented to dealers by customers. And then in brackets in the justice's comments, he said, quote, called by TMCA somewhat oddly as guests, end quote. Um, <laughs> clearly, the justice who handed down this decision took issue with more than just the DPF uh, and was, was quite disdainful towards how Toyota treated 
the people that allegedly suffered these issues. So it's going to be interesting to see how this shapes up on appeal because although there is no arguing with the fact that these DPFs did suffer issues, Toyota is trying to reduce what it will have to pay based on, you know, based on the number of cars that are affected. And I think also it's probably seeking a, a less scathing or more balanced review from the, the <laughs> justice rather than one that takes a swipe at uh, the way it describes its customers. <laughs> more news can be found at carexpert.com.au. So we sort of forgot to cover May's new car sales figures when they were released last week. So, oopsie. Uh, so here we are, better late than never. Hello, Mike Costello. Hello, Mandy. How did we fare for last month's V-Facts? Well, to be totally honest, you didn't miss a great deal by not running it last week because there weren't a heap of surprises. Uh, sales fell by 6.4% in May to uh, just over 94,000 sales, which just like the last six months, the uh, the car brands are all blaming on a complete lack of supply. Um, it wasn't all bad for all brands, though. So, Kia posted an absolutely stunning result, finishing second overall for its best ever finish. In so doing, obviously, it was behind Toyota because Toyota's always number one, but Kia beat Mazda and it also beat Hyundai. And there's a pretty intense rivalry in the Korean headquarters for those two sister companies. So, Kia will no doubt be delighted. Um, uh, also, uh, MG, Subaru and Suzuki posted fairly strong growth as well, thereby uh, going against the trend. There were no massive revelations when it came to the most popular models. The Toyota Hilux was on top, just like it pretty much always seems to be. It's about as entrenched at the top of the ladder as the uh, Ford F-150 is in the United States. Um, ahead of a massively supply-constrained Toyota RAV4 in second place, despite having a wait list of 18 months, my friends bought one this week and got quoted an 18-month wait. Um, and then the run-out Ford Ranger, which is staying strong right to the end of its life cycle with the new model just about to arrive. Um, just for a little bit of context, in the same month last year, sales did go over 100,000, so it has fallen back to be just over 94. Sales declined across every single part of Australia except for the Northern Territory, um, which was ever so slightly up. As for the year-to-date figures, 437,884 sales, down 4%. So for all of the talk of doom and gloom, and there's definitely massive supply shortages that are happening out there, sales haven't tanked because demand is still really high, although moving forward as we move into much more dire economic times with inflation out of control, it's going to be really interesting to see if that remains the case. Got a quote here from the head of the FCAI, which is the chief lobby group for the car brands, Tony Weber, said the global automotive industry continues to be plagued by a shortage of microprocessor units and shipping delays. And this issue is not, u- not unique to Australia. Hardly groundbreaking news there, Tony, but uh, good to know. Anyway, guys, hit me with questions. What do you want to know? Moko, the one that I'm really curious about is electric vehicles. We have already talked in news about the fact the Tesla Model Y is now coming to Australia very soon. What are some of the other standouts at the moment in that space? Yeah, so look, electric vehicles are on the up and up. Uh, this year, oh, sorry, I should say for the month of May, uh, 925 sales, up 112%. And there are almost no Model 3s sold by Tesla because Tesla t- tends to sell them every third month. It brings in a giant glut and then just basically dumps them all every three months. So um, the rest of the market is catching up, although they're still nowhere near Tesla. Um, 
a couple of other ones that perform quite well. Well, the MG ZSEV is currently in run out with the new model just around the corner, so that's fallen away a bit. The Volvo XC40 recharge is killing it at the moment. Volvo is selling every single XC40 recharge it can get its hands on. And the Porsche Taycan is one of the most popular premium sort of sedan type vehicles of any type, let alone EVs, which really shows that sort of growing spectrum of EVs that are out there. We actually did a piece uh, about a week ago on Car Expert that I'd encourage everybody listening to this to go and check out. Um, which goes through every single electric vehicle that is coming to Australia over the next two years or so. And there are about 45 or 50 different EVs that we already know of that are coming. So while the market share of EVs is currently only around 2%, looking forward over the next two or three years, the absolute wave of product that's coming, albeit sometimes supply constrained, suggests that will change uh, in a great deal. There's one brand that we ask you about every single time you're on the podcast, Mike, and usually it's doom and gloom, but this time uh, actually seemed to have a bit of a result. How did Honda fare? How did Honda fare? Good question. I'm just going to scroll up so you can get a behind-the-scenes view at, uh, as I frantically scroll through my story <laughs> trying to find it. Um, no, so Honda, uh, 1,423 sales for the month, um, which put it in just inside the top 20. Um in between two Chinese brands, GWM and LDV, just ahead of Volvo car. Um, but you know what? It was at 1.4% and that is the first time in quite some time that Honda has stabilised because it has been going downwards for quite some time. Now, in Honda's defence, and Honda cops a hell of a lot of grief from our commenters, it did signpost this. It did say we're going to go to an agency model. We're going to hold our own inventory. We're not going to give dealers the ability to haggle and we're going to sell fewer cars at higher prices and thereby make more profit. Honda said this all along, and uh, it, it is now, well, for its sake, I hope that it has plateaued and it will now sort of stay at this happy volume. The new HRV seems to be doing good things for the brand. There's quite a wait list on the hybrid already. I drove the petrol one recently, and it was a bit underwhelming, actually, but the hybrid one looks pretty good. The new Civic is obviously here, new CRV around the corner. So I think Honda has probably hit that point where it has bottomed out, and it's doing volumes that are much lower than it was in its pomp around sort of 07, 08, but uh, it is where it said it would be. So, not the worst story for Honda, unlike some previous months. Uh, Moko, what about the brands that didn't do so good last month? Yeah, so the absolute sort of poster child for that would be Mazda, um, which has been absolutely destroyed by supply over the past month or two. Car brands tend to have good months and bad months. Mazda has been doing okay up till now because globally, uh, Mazda Australia is an absolute jewel in its crown. It's number two in market traditionally, and there's nowhere else where Mazda has the market share that it does in Australia. So it tends to get good stock, but that's changed lately. Um, Mazda fell away by 38.7% last month into fourth position. It did it did stay in fourth. It didn't quite lose out to Mitsubishi in fifth, but that's a pretty big drop. Um, some other brands that fell away, Ford was down 19%, Nissan 31%, and the whole Volkswagen group. So Volkswagen itself down 45%, alongside Audi by 45%, and Skoda was down 51%. So that whole group is really struggling. Again, linked to lack of supply. Lexus was down 34%. The wait lists for the brand new NX have already ballooned out beyond 12 months for Lexus. So I don't expect that to change anytime soon. And Land Rover was down by 28% as well. Um, so there's some pretty major brands that did struggle. On the other hand, as I sort of signpost before, Suzuki did really well. It was up by 39 percent 
GWM or Great War Motor was up 26%, Volvo up 19% and actually finished ahead of Audi for the month. Um, Renault was up 18% and Ram Trucks up 95%. So the rest of the world pivots to EVs and Aussies just embrace more and more Hemi V8 work utes. (laughs) (laughs) Um, On the note of of brands that did well and did poorly, I also siphoned off some individual models that – sort of belied the doom and gloom. I actually turned this into a separate story, but I think it's worth mentioning here. It's called 10 Cars with Sales Growth in 2022, Belying the Gloom. So there's actually uh, 10 models here that have gone against the overall market trend, uh, which is plummeting and gone in the other direction, including the Hyundai Venue up 30%, the Kia Stinger up 76%, the LDV D90, the almost entirely unknown Chinese seven-seat SUV, up 285%, if you don't mind. The Mazda CX-30, despite Mazda having a bit of a tough time, the CX-30 is hanging in there and absolutely decimates the Mazda 3 for sales these days, up 34%. The MGHS, uh, we've already seen MG skyrocket with the MG3 light car and MG ZS, small SUV, but now the HS medium-sized SUV is picking up the baton and running with it, up 52%. The humble Mitsubishi Pajero Sport up 37%. Nissan's mighty V8 Patrol capitalising on the uh, lack of Land Cruiser availability up 117%. Renault Colios up 153%. And the Suzuki Bellino up 104.5%. Um, because <laughs> frankly, small cars are dead. cheap and cheerful, right? It's a big spacious car that costs bugger all because it's made in India and there are still plenty of people that want that. So a little bit of silver lining coming through all this gloom. Having recently had a Suzuki Bellino as a rental car in Tasmania, I feel the cheerful might not necessarily be the right <laughs> word to describe it. Well, you might be cheerful if you looked at a Toyota Yaris that cost 30 grand and only paid 20 for your Bellino. That is a very good point. There's a little bit more that I'll just I'll just tick off before you let me go because you know what I'm like with this stuff. Um, so, um, sales by category, we saw SUVs with 54.5% market share. So, I mean, that just continues to grow every single month. Passenger cars now, by that I mean things that aren't SUVs or utes. So, wagons, sedans, hatchbacks, coupes, convertibles, people movers, etc. Only 18% of all the vehicles sold last month fit that criteria. So, the days of passenger cars really are becoming numbered. Medium SUVs, almost one in five of all vehicles sold belong just to that one singular segment, which is led by the RAV4. Private buyers uh, only down 2.9% for the month, while business fleets were down by 14%. So private buyers are hanging tough. It's really businesses that are starting to sort of uh, maybe make some more discretionary purchases around cars. Um, Hybrid cars up 11%. Plug-in hybrids up 183%, but still well behind both normal hybrids and EVs. So plug-in hybrids, while growing, are not as well received as other low emission vehicle options by Australians. And the final one is sales by country of origin, Japan, Thailand, and Korea, as always, the top three. But China now well and truly ensconced as our fourth biggest trading partner for cars ahead of both the USA and Germany. Interesting. All right, if you have any questions, you can whack them in the comments section at the Car Expert story. Thank you very much, Mike Costello. It is always a pleasure, guys. Great to see you. It's no secret I think the entire Car Expert team loves a sporty wagon. Could the Volkswagen Golf R wagon be the ultimate one to get? James Wong is the man to ask because not only does he love wagons but also golfs. Hello, Jaywo. 
Hi, guys and girl. How are you going? <laughs> Good. <laughs> um, this must be a bit hard without being too biased as a golf owner yourself. Is this the sporty wagon we should all be, all be buying? Um, well, it's one of the few sporty wagons you can actually buy in this price bracket at the moment. And so it was a very interesting uh, review to write and, you know, go through the motions of it all because once I really sat down and tried to do competitor analysis and, you know, weigh up the good and the bad, it, it, regardless of the pros and cons of the vehicle objectively, it sort of sits in its own class if that makes sense there's not really anything else around this price range that offers the same performance the same there are some that offer similar space that you know it's 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 a hard it's a hard thing to balance and even though it's a volkswagen the golf r badge has really big significance here australia is one of the biggest markets for volkswagen r products in fact i think we're like the first or second biggest market outside of Europe. So I think Germany and the UK are ahead of us for outright sales and then it's Australia, which is why it's such an important um, sub-brand for Volkswagen. That's why they're starting to bring so many of their products here. Now, with the Golf Wagon, the R-Wagon, excuse me, it was um, an interesting one because this is actually, I think, the first eighth-generation Golf model that I've actually reviewed despite um, we've had a few through the office and I didn't manage to get my hands on the GTI. I've driven some, but I haven't actually reviewed them. So I came into it with high hopes given um, I've heard, obviously had really good um, feedback from some of the others on the team. And as you say, I love a wagon and I nearly bought the previous generation Golf R wagon when I bought my GCI, but didn't actually come around to doing it. Yeah, that's a, that's a whole nother story. But <laughs> so um, when I when I picked up this Lapiz Blue R wagon with the optional Harman Kardon stereo, I was like, okay, this is like the spec that I would get if I was to buy one. Then I did some looking into the pricing, and it's sixty nine nine ninety as tested. <laughs> Wow. So, J-Wo, on that price, how yes. much more is it than the Golf R hatchback and how does it stack up alongside the Tiguan R, which obviously throws a curveball in there that the previous Golf R wagon didn't have to deal with? Yeah, so it's, a, it's, it's that kind of goes back to that interesting competitor and analysis and I feel like the Golf R wagon's closest competitors actually come from within the Volkswagen showroom. So, at 68990 plus on roads, it's about three grand more than the equivalent Golf R hatchback and... And it's identically priced to the Tiguan R. The difference between the Golf R wagon and then the Golf R hatch and Tiguan R is that the Golf R wagon gets the full European tune. So it gets a petrol particulate filter. And with that um, more sophisticated exhaust system comes with 20 newton meters more torque. So it make, actually makes 235 kilowatts and 420 newton meters, whereas the other two vehicles make 400 newton meters for the time being. They're still on a catalytic converter older system that is not only has less torque it also is less fuel efficient in the other cars and emits more so the golf r wagon if you're looking for the most you know up-to-date european product of the three that's the one to go for um and there's also things like the volkswagen passat which is like $300 less and offers even more space but a little bit less performance so it's a really interesting um you know comparison there not having driven the cars back to back but i did recently drive the tiguana and even though they're the same price and they have similar space and whatever they're sort of for different people i feel the tiguan is a little bit higher probably um arguably is a bit more comfortable given it's a bit taller and has a bit more suspension travel um but the 
and a bigger rear seat. That was something that I really noticed. The um, the golfer, both in hatch and wagon guys, gets these like big uh, one piece, not one piece, um, race seats with integrated headrests. Whereas the Tiguan gets like a stand, not a standard sports seat, but a, a sportier version of the standard seat, which eats less into the rear leg room. Because the Golf R wagon has 50 millimeters on the hatchback in terms of wheelbase, but I think that sort of gets offset by the seats. Um, the Golf R wagon is technically quicker than a Tiguan R, but it's slightly slower than a Golf R hatch. It's sort of like this weird, like you can just keep on going. It's like a pinball machine. You just go ding, 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 ding. Then there's all these points of comparison that you can go for. Um, what I can say is that the... If you want, if you're tossing up between, say, a Golf R wagon and a Tiguan R, I think it will come down to what you want to get out of the drive experience and then what kind of practicality you're after. The Golf R wagon is definitely the sharper driver's car of the two. It's as close to a Golf R hatch as you can get with a little bit of a long butt. And it's still, it's, it's much more hunkered down. It grips tenaciously. It was, I was very, very impressed because I took it out for an extended drive um, today at, towards King Lake, which is out in Mel, Victoria's northeast. And it was a very rainy day in Victoria today. So I really put that four motional wheel drive to the test. And given I've driven the previous Golfer and other front drive biased um, all wheel drive products from Europe, the way that the diffs and the, you know, all the torque vectoring and stuff all works so seamlessly and so quickly underneath you to keep you on track, I was really, really surprised with how far I could push this car without ever feeling nervous or skittish or like, oh, maybe I should back off because I'm going to end up off a cliff. So it's um, the drive in the Golf R wagon is probably what sets it apart most from the Tiguan. And then if you're looking for outright boot space, it's also probably the one to get. So it sounds like the more dynamic choice, but if we're talking about using it as a family vehicle, how comfortable is the ride quality, for example? Um, I noticed it was a little bit taut. Uh, um, and more taut than I expected. Um, my GTI has obviously the sports suspension tune with adaptive dampers as well. And I just feel like the comfort mode in that has a little bit of extra compliance, but that also could be because I have 18 inch wheels. The, the Golf R wagon that I, um, that I've driven here, they, they come stand in Australia with 19s and it just feels a little bit sharper and a little bit firmer, but not to the absolute detriment of ride quality. In terms of what's a better family car, I think it depends on how old the family members are and how big they are. I think the Golf R wagon is per- is fine if you have like kids in child seats or, you know, younger children that, you know, aren't necessarily my size or if they ever are unfortunate enough to grow to the Scott size, they won't, they won't be kicking you in the back because yeah, I did transport my Costello and Scott in the car and both of them were kneeing me in the back when they were sitting in the back seat, which wasn't the most pleasant experience. Um, also the, the Golf's boot in wagon guys is technically bigger than the Tiguan. So the Tiguan quotes a little bit more if you push the seats forward, but the Golf's um, boot space is a bit more constant. So I think if you're carrying like dogs or you've got prams and things like that, and you've, you don't have to use, put someone really large in the back seat, I think that the um, the Golf might have the Tiguan beat there. A lot has been made of the interior of the new Golf, not just the space it has, but also the tech inside. How does the Mark 8 stack up compared to your car, which obviously you're familiar with, but also maybe has some of the things that we'd like to see in the new one? 
Yeah, so I imagine that when people read my review, I have a lot to say about the interior being a current golf owner. I was a bit underwhelmed by how everything looked and felt despite being somewhat okay with non-performance versions of this car. Um, I think especially now that the car's nudging $70,000, which it's not even 1000 that wagon is not even $1000 less than an Audi S3 Sportback and I don't know like I just I sat in it and you know you've got the the blue lit um ambient lighting which is configurable and you got the nice screens and it's a very like clean design given they've basically taken away most of the buttons that you would re- could reach or touch when you actually sit down and try to use it in day-to-day use the the actual usability and ergonomics of it all is quite confusing and at times frustrating and i will be the first to say i can be a little bit particular but i'm also quite techy especially with cars and i love being able to play with screens and use all the different functions and things like that and when something's truly innovative and you know user friendly i will absolutely call it out but this car i don't know what they've done but it's just so frustrating to use like it's not even down to having you know touch panels for your climate controls and things like that it's just how you know my car you sit down you look at everything everything that you would ever need to use is pretty much within arm's reach and it's all really clearly labeled and whatever you've got really nice chunky dials for the climate controls you've got a quick easy access um, to demister functions within reach of those dials as well it took me two days to realize where the demister functions were on the golf 8 and it's because it's next to the headlight controls as opposed to on the center stack which stupid me for not looking but also who thought of that and the the way that the screen surrounds it are designed the corners the bottom corners of the screen are extremely close to the touch sliders for the t- the temperature so a couple of times i found myself reaching in to press on carplay when you in the sidebar you have like a little button to go back to the main menu every time i touch that and if i did it from the wrong angle i changed the, the the temperature by half to one degree and then i'd be like why is it suddenly so cold or why is it blowing out hot air now or i've touched the thing that opens up the heated seat controls it's just weird. And, yeah, and I did. I couldn't find the setting that stopped it from turning on the heated steering wheel and heated seats when I got in because I'm somebody that runs hot. So as soon as you put on a heated seat, my back starts sweating. And it's just not a nice experience. And it kept on turning on every time I switched off and on the car. I was like, why is it doing this? And then the instrument cluster is smaller than my one and it isn't as easy to use. And like you touch the buttons on the steering wheel and you brush the wrong one and it, you know, you turn up the cruise control by 10 Ks or you switch one of the displays in the cluster or it turns on the heated steering wheel. There's just a lot of things that I, that I think need another layer of refinement or polish because if it's confusing for me and I'm not trying to say that I'm, you know, this technology or ergonomics ex- expert, but obviously we test a lot of cars and we know what works. If I find it difficult to use, I imagine that someone like my parents or, a, you know, a friend or a friend's parent who was going to buy a car like this is probably going to find it difficult as well. It's hard enough just to use Siri because if you press the, the voice button in the wrong spot, you can't long press and then it comes up with the Volkswagen assistant that's not going to be able to change the song for me when I want to put on, you know, a Mariah Carey song. So, like, it's just there's so many little usability things that were re- really, really irked me and then that's before I start looking at, like, the cabin materials and everything. It feels like it doesn't feel like a $70,000 car inside. The Napa leather seats are gorgeous. I 
think they're really comfortable. They've got heating and ventilation and whatever. And the steering wheel is really nice to hold irrespective of those touch controls. But you just, you know, everything, what the bits that your knee rests against, the lower side of the dash, there's even some parts of the door construction that are just really hard, scratchy plastic that would feel more in more in the right place if it was in a polo than it would be in a $70,000 golf. And that's just what's, I think, what really disappointed me is that it just didn't feel like it was an improvement over the previous one. Like the Shaw, the Mark 7, the way that everything's laid out is a little bit conventional and perhaps dated. But at the same time, I think that this car, while the exterior design was an evolution, the interior was such a revolution or, you know, just a departure from previous um, strategy that it's going to just burn a lot of people. It's interesting. Um, it, it burnt my hairdresser, I should say. This is quite random, but he used to have a 7.5 Golf, not a GTI, not an R, but he replaced it with the R-Line Mark 8. And mm. I was super excited when he told me he bought it brand new. And uh, I said, oh, how are you finding it? And he went, oh, and I'm like, oh, that's not a good answer. And he basically said, and, and this is not a super big car guy, but he basically said exactly the same thing as you. I liked the 7.5 better with the interior. I don't mind the exterior, but I would love to take so many features from the 7.5 into the 8. Mm, so it's not yeah. a big surprise that you would say that. Yeah, it's just it was just disappointing. And as a, as a current owner, that would be a barrier for me to, to for purchase. Mm. It would almost, like in my mind, having driven the S3 as well, I would be like, I don't, I would get rid of the boot because, and as cool as wagons are, I'd spend the I'd spend the extra grand and go for an Audi S3 because they've managed to keep some of the old stuff that made previous iterations of the Golf so good, like physical climate controls and, you know, easier access to switch gear and things like that. There's a bit more convention with how that cabin's been designed, plus the better materials, even though it's not as good as the previous one as well, but it's still held to a higher standard. I feel like Volkswagen's sort of starting to go in the way um, that Mercedes-Benz has gone, where it's focusing so much on the tech, which obviously is important in this day and age. And if you can make great technology solutions in car, you know, and setting the the groundwork for connected vehicles and stuff in the future excellent but when it's to the when it's engineered to the point where it's complex for the sake of being complex i think it defeats the purpose and given volkswagens are meant to be the people's car you need to be able to cater to as many people as possible and i just can't see the average buyer being comfortable with a lot of these controls it would just be as you said you've got someone who owns one as a friend mandy and they still find it frustrating. So mm -hmm. it's just, yeah, clearly something has not gone right there. Okay, that review is live now. Which, what car expert rating did you give it, Jaywo? Uh, it ended up with an 8.4, which I still think is respectable, but there's obviously areas for improvement. Okay. Awesome. Thank you. No worries. Thanks for having me. That's an end for this week's podcast. Some events and launches we've got coming up next week, Scully. So the big one is James Wong is off to France to drive the new Mercedes AMG C43 and EQE 53. Will, I don't mean to rain on your parade. Your thing is slightly less exciting compared to that, but Will is going to be in Sydney driving the new VW Tiguan Allspace. I'm um, flying to an exotic and glamorous place as well, Sydney. <laughs> <laughs> Said like a true Brisbaneite, if no. that's the correct way to describe them. Tell me, Scott, have you been as James being has James been as unbearable about his exciting overseas event as you were when you uh, went on one? Because we heard about that quite a bit. He's been no more or less unbearable than usual, I would say. Oh. 
Uh, now, Will, it seems like you're a little bit busy driving a number of cars next week. Yeah. Um, somehow we have more cars in... Oh, I think we have the same number of cars in the calendar in Brisbane as we do in Melbourne. And there are more people in Melbourne. <laughs> so, I'm not quite <laughs> sure what happened there. Let's just start with with glamorous, exotic Sydney first. Uh, Kurt is driving oh, a Genesis GV80 with a, with a 3.5 litre turbo V6. Okay, jealous. Uh, mm-hmm. Melbourne, uh, y'all have got an Isuzu MUX and a Toyota Fortuna for a comparison. Um, an Audi Q5 35TDI, a Volkswagen Polo Life, and a Kia Stinger GT line, because uh, I think you just had a GT last week, which is the one that everyone buys. So now you're going to drive the one that nobody buys. <laughs> um, now, in Brisbane, uh, our Chris Atkinson is going to be taking a Hyundai i30 sedan N to the track, Queensland oh. Raceway. So that will be a lot of fun. Um, we will also have a Subaru WRX TS sedan. So we've been kind of making our way through the WRX range, both in Melbourne and in Brisbane. Um, I just got out of a GT sports wagon quite recently. Um, so we'll have the TS sedan. We'll have the Honda HRV up here. So we've got back-to-back loans with um, the petrol model and then the hybrid. So I'll be very curious about that. I got to drive the new Civic for the first time the other day. So that was interesting. Um, but also... We are going to have a Jeep Grand Cherokee L Summit Reserve and a Nissan Patrol TIL, and they just happen to fall at the same time. So I might have something planned there. (laughs) (laughs) Um, No, I just went. I know you, um, you guys in Melbourne have. Uh, got a Grand Cherokee L coming up as well. Um, I went to the launch review for that. Um, and launch reviews are always, uh, sorry, launch reviews, launches are always really tantalizing because you, you're you like, oh, wow, this is it's so cool to be in this car. I really would just love to drive it for longer and on the roads that I know. <laughs> so I'll be very keen to get behind the wheel of that. And I'll also be very keen to get behind the wheel of a patrol because I've been trying to get my hands on one for a while. Um, now, of course, it happens to come as petrol is $2 a litre, but, you know, you know, beggars can't be choosers. Good timing. <laughs> All right, Scott Colley and William Stopford, thank you so much. Thanks, Mandy. Goodbye to you, Mandy. <laughs> 